Okay, I'm going to start talking. I hope you picked up an outline on the way in. There's probably some still back there if you haven't. We're progressing to the sixth chapter now of the Old Testament prophet Nehemiah. The theme of this chapter that we're going to be studying today is about fear. About 90% of the stupid things I have ever done in my life were because of fear. (coughs) The enemy of our soul knows our vulnerability to fear. If he doesn't directly cause fear in our lives, he will take advantage of any little bitty bit of fear to distract, redirect, or destroy our lives. Our text begins like this, chapter 6, verse 1. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it, though at that time I had not hung the doors and the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, Let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me harm. So I sent messages to them, saying, I am doing a great work, so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? But they sent me this message four times, and I answered them in the same manner. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me as before the fifth time, with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says, that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king. So come, therefore, and let us consult together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such thing as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. For they all were trying to make us afraid, saying, Their hands will be weakened in the work, and it will not be done. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. Now notice in verse 9, afraid. And you skip down to verse 13. For this reason he was hired that I should be afraid. In verse 14, the last word is afraid. And the last phrase in in verse 19, Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. Afraid, 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 frighten. Heavenly Father, fear is a tool, a major tool frequently used by our enemy to distort, destroy, redirect, confuse, limit our effectiveness in bringing glory to you. Many, Father, their lives are controlled by fear, and fear is from the kingdom of darkness. God never leads his children through fear. Fear is a signature of Satan 
in our lives when we succumb to it. Father, I pray as we look at this text and uh, some other associated information, I pray, Lord, that we would be willing to be honest before you with regard to the place of fear in our lives. I pray that you would do surgery in our hearts with regard to this matter of fear this morning. Be our teacher, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The enemy knows that he was defeated on the cross. He knows he has lost us to his kingdom. But he will do everything he can to intimidate us into a box of fear to keep us focused on ourselves and useless to God's kingdom. Here are some of the tools that he uses. The fear of loss. Loss can be as simple as change. I have seen the enemy divide a church over a simple little change. There's always the sense of the loss of security when the familiar is changed. And people sometimes do all sorts of weird things because they succumb to the lie that Satan brought through fear. The fear of punishment, living life hostage to an abusive past would be an example. Fear of rejection, uh, growing up with a conditional love. Love was extended as long as you performed properly. And such feelings are passed on to our relationship with God. And so we try to appease God or perform for him instead of getting to know him in relationship and to walk with him. The fear of failure, living life focused on how others see me. The fear of people, so we protect, we isolate, we perform, we build walls and hide our true selves because of a felt need to protect ourselves. That's fear. And then fear of God, a toxic fear, this idea that God is out to get me. Not only that, but in each of these cases, I believe that the fundamental root of fear goes back to a misunderstanding or a uh, misidentification of who God is. If we truly know who God is, um, these fears will not reign supreme in our life. By way of introduction to the theme in our text today, two weeks ago I briefly uh, introduced a contrast between healthy fear and destructive fear. The destructive fear that Satan uses to destroy our lives. And Lisa put these into a chart form for me. And visuals are always helpful to me. In your outline, you'll see this chart. And I'm going to go through it one by one. The different kinds of fear. Healthy fear, unhealthy fear. Circumstantial fear is healthy. Unhealthy fear is perpetual and undefined. For example, circumstantial fear, a moose charges all of a sudden. The next thing you know, you're 20 feet up a tree and you don't know how you got there. Some of you know Chloe on the softball team. A moose, she runs a, last year she was running a, a trap line. 
in the winter. A moose charged her. She climbed a tree with snowshoes on. <laughs> it's amazing what you can do. That's circumstantial fear. That's a good thing. But perpetual, undefined fear. It's that unrelenting anxiety that you can't put your finger on. It's just there. It begins each day soon after you get up, and it never fully goes away. Our emotional constitution was not designed to handle unrelenting anxiety. And when that kind of fear is present in our life, it ultimately leads to long-term depression. And guess who wins? Satan. Healthy fear is protective. Unhealthy fear that comes from Satan's kingdom is paralyzing. I used the illustration two weeks ago of a rattlesnake. When I hear the buzz of a rattlesnake where I grew up, fear that protects me, that makes me back off, that fright, flight, fight syndrome, I believe is a God-given self-protection response in those kinds of situations. An unhealthy fear is paralyzing. It holds one captive to underachievement, poor decisions, feelings of inadequacy and inferiority, isolationism, and withdrawal. Satan wins. Healthy fear is instructive. Unhealthy fear is confusing. Have you ever put your hand on a hot stove? It instructed you to fear stoves and to test it before you put your hand on it next time. That's healthy. It's protective. Unhealthy fear is confusing. It's fatal. It brings fatalistic thinking, cynicism, bitterness. Again, Satan wins. Healthy fear is empowering, enabling, equipping. Unhealthy fear is enslaving. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you fear. Is that what it says? The truth will set you free. Fear is a lie. Untruth is Satan's turf. When we live in fear, Satan wins. Healthy fear brings peace. Jesus said, in me you shall have peace. My peace I give you. Unhealthy fear leaves us in darkness. When fear is present, we are being controlled by Satan's kingdom. Call it what it is. I'm talking here about unhealthy fear, the kind that comes from Satan. I'm not talking about healthy fear. There is such a thing. But when we have these forms of unhealthy fear, we are under the dominion and control of Satan. That fear is his turf. He uses fear to control, to defeat us. <clears throat> fear exposes Satan's fingerprint. It is his signature, and it is always, every time, rooted in a lie that you or I believe. When we are experiencing unhealthy fear, we have believed a lie at some point that we are acting upon or reacting to. Fear is rooted in untruth, in satanic lie, every time. Jesus said of Satan, he does not stand in the truth, 
because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from himself, for he is a liar and the father of it. John 8, 44. So what do we do when fear assaults us? Three things. Admit your fear without shame. The first lie we often believe is that we should deny our fear. I mean, I'm a man. I was taught as a boy, boys don't cry. Boys are not afraid. And so you know what men do? They get married. And they've never dealt, been been allowed to deal with fear. So what men generally do when they're afraid? They get angry. It's okay to be angry. That's manly. But to be afraid? No, we wouldn't want to go there. To admit your fear without shame. Much of the power of fear is destroyed by simply getting it out of the closet. Darkness is Satan's domain, and it's healing just to expose our fear to the light. That's a a big step, being willing to admit our fears. Second, submit your fear to God. My feelings are not my master. Jesus is. The emotion of fear may be very real, but that doesn't make it right. God's word will tell us the truth about our emotions. And when we have one of these unhealthy fears, our emotions are not right. They're rooted in a lie. And we need to learn to recognize that. Every time in my past I have responded out of fear, I lived to regret it. God never leads us with fear. Admit your fear without shame. Submit your fear to God and transmit your fear to faith. Six months ago, I preached a sermon entitled Unmasking and Confronting the Enemy of Our Souls. I made reference then that all of Satan's schemings are rooted in untruth, in lies, and that he has access to our mind. One of the most liberating things I discovered in my life was that many of the thoughts that would just pop out of nowhere were not coming from within. They were coming from without. And Satan was putting those lies in my mind in the first person, making me think that they were my thoughts. And I learned to stand against that. As the Bible tells us, putting on the whole armor of God, taking the shield of faith by which we can quench all the fiery darts of the evil one. The shield of faith is right here. This is the the faith, the shield of the faith. It's not talking about screwing up a whole bunch of faith. It's just saying, exercising our faith by using the word of God, trusting and believing it. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. I can't tell you how many times I've quoted that out loud. How did Jesus confront Satan's? Three times when Satan tempted him through untruth, 
twisted truth, Scripture out of context, every time Jesus confronted it with speaking the truth of God's world, the shield word, the shield of faith. <clears throat> Satan's lies come in many disguises. In our text today, we have an, uh, an, a well-illustrated uh, how Satan's lies can be clothed in such a way that they're hard to recognize. And then we're going to be instructed by Nehemiah's responses. The first lie came disguised as a need for approval from bureaucratic officialdom. This whole chapter is about the enemy's attempt to immobilize Nehemiah through fear, to cause him to pull up the flag of of retreat or the flag of surrender. And they begin to do this by calling for a meeting, another distraction to complicate his efforts. On the surface, this meeting appeared to be a, a harmless proposal. In verse 2, uh, come down to Ono. We're going to have a meeting down on the plains of Ono. You come on down. We're not told why but, or how, but Nehemiah knew that they had a, uh, an unhealthy purpose behind this. And as is always the case, in verse 4, they just kept at it. Four times they kept trying to get him to come. In every case, we are to confront Satan's lies and the temptation to fear with the truth of God's word, putting on the whole armor of God as we face the wiles of the evil one. One of the wiles or methods is, is the Greek word dolos, which means craft, deceit, guile. That's how it's translated. But the root word there means put a worm on the hook. You know, Satan uses the lie to make it very attractive. Oh, man, that, that's the way to go. But it's a scheme based upon untruth to destroy, redirect, or defile us. How, do we do, how did the Nehemiah deal with this? Nehemiah was absolutely convinced of his, in his heart that he was doing a great work, God's work. And Nehemiah <clears throat> settled that when he was on his knees back in chapter 1, 800 miles from Jerusalem, the cupbearer of the king. He wept over what he heard was going on in Jerusalem, and then he got on his knees and prayed. And the conviction of his soul directed the course of his life. Commitment always follows conviction. We hear a lot these days about how Christians today in a church of America just really lack commitment. No, they lack conviction. If the conviction is there, the commitment will follow. Just like our commitment never goes above our investment. Our investment in anything will be the level to which we rise in commitment, whether that be a time or, or whatever. <clears throat> Conviction be, precedes commitment. Without settled conviction, commitment always falters. And I think this is so important, especially when it deals with confronting our enemy, the enemy of our soul, our 
convictions, our, um, what's the word? Our purposing of heart must take place prior to its challenge. You will be challenged. And if your conviction isn't set ahead of time, you will falter, you will fail. Even as Daniel in chapter 1, verse 8 said, he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's meat. The conviction, the purposing of heart preceded the challenge. As I I think I shared last week with, with Joseph and Potiphar's wife, his conviction was settled and he would not defile himself with her against the Lord. This is always going to be the case with Satan. Verse 5, Then Sanballat sent his servant to me a fifth time with an open letter. It is reported among the nations. It's common, a common rumor that you're building the wall that you might be a king and, and so on. <clears throat> the rumor mill in verse in verse 6, it is rumored. <laughs> when somebody said it is reported to me, I, I want to know by whom. Well, everyone is saying, well, that's you and who else? Well, we. Oh, do you have a frog in your pocket? It's you and the frog. You know, uh, I, I'm sorry. I'm kind of hard-nosed about that. Uh, and you just say, well, it's rumored. I say, well, whoopee-doo. I don't care. What do you think? What do you think? What's your? I want to know what you think. I don't care about anybody else. You're the one that's come to me. Tell me. Don't give me this it's reported or a rumor thing. And then slander, verse 6 and 7. You're, you're, you're appointing a prophet to proclaim yourself as king. These matters will be reported. Oh, man, they're really putting the pressure on The purpose of this all, end of verse 7, was to get Nehemiah to come to this uh, meeting in Ono. And to Ono, Nehemiah said, oh no. Isn't that profound? One's integrity and conviction had best be well-rooted in truth to withstand this kind of attack. And then in verse 8, then I sent to him saying, no such thing as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart, for they, are, for they all were trying to make us afraid, saying, their hands will be weakened in the work, and it will not be done. <clears throat> in essence, what Nehemiah was being charged with that he was some kind of a, a, uh, I better read the way I said it. You're painting yourself to look like a leopard king, but you're really only a pussycat with a giant ego. You're in this for personal gain. You're a great big hypocrite, Nehemiah. And you know, when, when my motives are challenged, there is nothing that strikes deeper into my heart than when my motives are challenged. Nehemiah was steadfast in the face of this charge because his courage was produced by truth. 
and his confidence was produced by his trust in the author of truth, an all-sufficient God. Courage that comes knowing that you're standing upon truth. And the confidence that comes in when you're trusting the author of that truth. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's the determination to do what is right. Oh, man, I hope we can all remember that. Courage is the determination to do what's right, not the absence of fear. Well, Nehemiah passed that test, too, when his motives were challenged. Then there was a third thing that happened, right? The enemy will try to compromise your principles. Verse 10. Afterward, I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delial, the son of Mehetabal, who was a a secret informer. And he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple. For they're coming to kill you, Nehemiah. Indeed, at night, they're going to come and kill you. And I said, such such a man as I flee. And who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that God had not sent him at all, but that the pronounced, but he pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this reason he was hired, that I should be afraid and act that way and sin, so that they might have cause for an evil report, that they might reproach me. My God, remember Tobiah. And Sanballat, according to these, their works. And the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who have made me afraid. Proverbs teaches that there is safety in a multitude of counselors. Just make sure of the character of the counselors. In this case, Nehemiah was wisely discerning that their character was flawed. In verse 10, Shemaiah was advising Nehemiah to meet in the house of God. Doesn't that sound good? But it wasn't. The enemy was really trying to shift Nehemiah's focus from building the wall to a preoccupation with his physical safety. They're going to come and kill you, Nehemiah. You better get down to the temple. What's the big deal about that? It would have been a compromise of his faith because he was proposing that he go into the inner temple and close the doors. That was only for the priests to do. Nehemiah wasn't allowed in there. But he was being challenged to compromise his faith in this case. Nehemiah refused to compromise his character for the sake of physical safety. Now, I just said a big thing there. I bet you missed it. Nehemiah was unwilling to compromise his faith for the sake of physical physical safety. That challenge is going to come upon all the inhabitants of the world who are Christians one day. To take the mark of the Antichrist. 
or surrender your life. And what's going to happen when that day comes is going to be a clear separation of the sheep and the goats. And I want to just ask you, is your commitment to Christ such that you would be willing to die for him? Really think about that. And I want to ask you men who are married, if the life of your wife was being threatened, would you be willing to die in her place? That sounds pretty extreme. But my Bible tells me that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Think about it. Just think about it. Nehemiah's response at this juncture is important for us to remember. Nehemiah made the decision first, I will not go in. And I just want to say this, he didn't have to pray about it. The Apostle Paul said, this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. I don't have to pray about sexual immorality. God's already told me. There are some things we don't have to pray about. Nehemiah didn't pray about this. And he made the decision, and it was then that he perceived. Truth always becomes clear when we act upon settled conviction that is rooted in God's word. For Nehemiah, the issue was never in doubt, and neither was his approach to success. It was dependence upon God. Upon, upon God. And I love this here. He says, God, my God, remember them. In that verse, in verse 14, Nehemiah is saying, God, sick them. Make them pay. Cut them down. Do whatever you need to do to get them where they belong. Do you ever pray sick them prayers? I think it's good. Sometimes when, when somebody, a, a fellow Christian, is really not walking with the Lord like he should, and I prayed this prayer just this week, I pray the miseries on them. Lord, make them miserable. Make your hand heavy upon them. I think, uh, as I read through Scripture, uh, it's in there. I think we need to do more sick and praying. So Nehemiah comes through victorious. Now the enemy is going to give up and go away. The wall is built. What it sounds like, look at verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. And it happened when all our enemies heard of it and all the nations around us saw these things that they were very disheartened in their own eyes. <coughs> For they perceived that this work was done by our God. End of story. 
Not quite. The enemy never gives up. Remarkably, the walls were rebuilt in just 52 days. The enemies admitted as much. But look at verse 17. Nevertheless, in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and letters of Tobiah came to them. And Tobiah, verse 19, sent letters to me to frighten me. He wouldn't give up. Clearly the victory was won. By the hand of God's people in obedience to God, the walls were built. And ultimately, success was by the hand of God's power. Even the enemy here recognized that. I wonder sometimes why we can't recognize it. They recognized God's hand. But I want you to remember above all else this morning, when you've won the victory... The battle isn't over. When you've won the victory, when you've been victorious over temptation, or whatever, the battle is not over. Never forget that. The letters kept coming, and more letters, and loyalties were formed outside to destroy. Vigilance is the price of continued victory. Why does God allow the enemy to continue Why doesn't God eventually just say, enough already, you've gone through enough, your mind, your life is being sanctified, you've been victorious over sin, just sit back and relax until I come, you've finally come to the end of the struggle. Well, we know it isn't that way. I could think of several reasons in Scripture why, but I want to emphasize this by making just one closing point on this matter of never giving up. The enemy never gives up. The point is this. Opposition is the whetstone of life that keeps the cutting edge of one's effectiveness sharp. If the enemy were not a part of the equation, we'd all probably become lukewarm, Laodicean Christians. Even the enemy has a purpose in the sanctification of our lives. By the way, if you were to read through this book, 365 times you would find the phrase fear not. One for every day. God says, be discerning about this matter of fear. It's one of the enemy's great tools through his deception and lies to bring fear into our lives. I want to leave, leave you in closing with one text of scripture, the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10 verse 28. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very heads 
the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So, do not fear, for you have more value than sparrows. Father, I thank you so much that you are not the author of fear. I thank you for the incredible gift that you give those who are yours to fear you in a healthy way, to acknowledge your person, to acknowledge that you are sovereign, to acknowledge that you are the creator and that you are the final judge and that we will stand before you. And we are to fear and reverence and awe and stand in awe of you and to acknowledge you as Lord. Oh, Father, may we experience that fear, that wholesome fear that brings us to our knees before a sovereign God who is also a God of incredible love. For the same God who spoke the universe into existence had to stoop and lower himself to become a man that he might die for our sin. Father, how I thank you for that incredible love that sent Jesus to die for our sin. And may we never, never, never get over the reality of what you did for us and live our lives in gratitude to you for what you have done. Father, we thank you for Jesus. And I thank you that he came to give us peace and to deliver us from fear. And it's in his name I pray, amen.